I was at Newark High School, um, 60, so 45 years ago. That's outrageous to even think of, but I was. And uh, I don't know what you did at lunchtime in your school day at high school, but our school day from about the summer to the winter back to the summer was engaged in just kicking the footy. That's what the boys did. Uh, we kicked the footy until we just sweated, just Siren went, and then we would go off to class. And when I was in year 12, it's funny, it's the only lesson I remember, I think. I can't think of another lesson where I learnt anything in year 12, but this one lesson. And we trudged in all about 150 of us, year 12s, went into the lecture theatre. It's fairly new, built at Nord High School, and we just had our shirts untucked and we just smelt terribly, you know, the half of us that were boys. And uh, we sat, pull out the desk, and our geography teacher began to draw on the blackboard as it was in those days. He had different coloured bits of chalk. It's all coming back to me. I'm seeing it right now. And we, because we were year 12s, we kept notes and we just copied everything that this man, his name was Mr. Ford, uh, he, he just, I think it was volcanoes. I, I, that part of it escapes me. I just remember doing it. But it, it was a, about a 40-minute lecture. And we just were drawing to a close. And he stood back and he looked at the whiteboard. And I was looking at my piece of paper. It didn't look as magnificent as his. And he said... This is all I can remember in 10 years of education. He said, I want you to do two things right now. And he got out a big bit of white chalk and he just went... A massive cross across this huge blackboard. And he said, that's all wrong. I've got the wrong page. And we're all stunned and we're looking at him and... For 40 minutes, we were recording and following everything he said because he was the teacher. And now he was saying, I'm just going to put a cross through that truth. It doesn't exist anymore. And I'll see you next lesson and I'll tell you what you really need to know to pass. He didn't actually say that, but in as much as he said that next, next lecture, we'll get it right. Now, students, we followed, because that's how the pattern of this world works. When you were a little kid, it may have been, if you're my age, you can remember getting milk delivered to the school, to the primary school, and it sat out in crates, and if it was, in those days, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, the milk sat in the crate, in the sun, and we drank a little bottle of milk... Uh, every recess. Why? Because the government, in their wisdom or otherwise, um, understood that milk, calcium, milk, was really important for young people when you grow. They say once you get to the age of 30, you can't determine the strength of your bones. But up to that age, what you can. But today, they say that dairy is no good for your gut. It's bad gut health. So dairy is out 
and yet they fed us on dairy. A lot of people of my age, when they were 19 or 20, wore what we call a mullet. It was kind of the hairstyle. And I can remember my brother being married in this church and my mum, not quite pleading, but strongly suggesting that he think about the hairstyle he had. He had this massive mullet, went all the way down to his shoulders. He was only 19. He was getting married and mum said, don't you reckon it would be a good idea to have a, you know, a haircut? And he said, no, no. Mullets were in. Mum, I can remember, said, but you're going to have photos that are going to last for a lifetime. But he wasn't listening. But how many of us know that (coughs) (coughs) mullets are out? You're a bogan. Sorry if you were wearing a mullet in here this morning. But mullet equates to being a bogan. Things have changed. And the world does that continually. It takes creation (coughs) and talks about another truth called evolution. Even non-Christians are questioning evolution today. There will be a cross through that at some stage completely and they move on to the next thing. An unborn child, they change the name, they call an unborn child a fetus. That's how they operate. You don't even say it like it is. They cross out this notion that there's a, a child in the mother's womb. They're crossing out the, really the definition of marriage. They're crossing out what was just simply male and female unbelievable it's the pattern of the world is to take a truth present it and you better jump on board wise up jump on board or else and in our day it's just getting progressively worse or else but it never changes it's a constant crossing out and a new truth coming that's the pattern but we've got God's wisdom and we've been spending our time in Hebrews and we've been looking into the Hebrews and the truth as it's come to me and I'm sure it's been shared uh, over the weeks is that Jesus is God's last word. Do you know, I can remember, I reckon Ted mentioning that in a sermon 30 years ago, whatever it was. Jesus is God's last word. The prophets spoke. There was Moses and there was this bloke. And all of it was, you know. But what Jesus has done is God's last word. We've heard that Jesus is greater. We've sung it this morning. We're going to hear again this morning that what Jesus did is once for all, for all time. In fact, If only one person in this whole world followed Jesus today, it would not change what Jesus has done. The world's pattern is to say, when heaps of people jump on board, that nullifies what was and validates what now is. But God's word doesn't operate like that. Even if it was just one of us, it wouldn't change one iota what God has done in Christ Jesus. There was a man, now I've got to look at this man's name, Aristides. He was an Athenian uh, statesman and philosopher that lived about 500 years before Christ. 
And apparently he wrote about Corinth, the people of Corinth. And he said, on every street corner, you will find a man in Corinth who will have an answer, words of wisdom, to solve the world's solutions. 500 years, 600 years later, another man spoke. His name was Paul. And he wrote to the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, and he said, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Corinth, like this world, was used to someone rising up and giving a new truth. Those very same people received the truth that Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God. So I want to be a little bit cheeky, take a liberty, and say that God uses a cross as well. His cross doesn't go like that. But in all history and all that he's done and all that he's doing today and all that will be forever and forever and forever, God has put a cross in it. But of course, it's very, very different, this cross. It's a cross that once established will never change. It's locked in. There is no change at all. Let's go to Hebrews. And Sheila, magnificent, has got it up there. I want to take Hebrews 10 and, and sort of surf through it. Um, you can see the little red bits are the places where I'm going to pause. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. See, it's true that the law that came through Moses, came from God, indeed did point to Jesus. Do you know how the saying goes that he's only a shadow of himself? So you just, I kind of think that says as a footballer, I always put everything back to football. I used to be able to jump that high off the ground. I'm a shadow of myself. I can only jump that high off the ground. So it has something to do. It, there's a picture there. There's a glimpse of, of the reality. The law of God is just a shadow. It's just a pointer. It goes on to say in verse it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the shadow part is that the law, once established, meant that I was ultimately going to break that law and I needed a sacrifice. And in the way of sacrifice, it was continual and continual and continual, the pattern that we've been speaking of already. So I sin, the law actually makes me a sinner. If the law didn't exist, how would I know what is right and wrong? But the law allowed me to know that I was a sinner. And once I was a sinner, I needed a sacrifice to have my sins taken away. And we know that that was a continual thing. And we also know, Hebrews says, it's impossible for that to ultimately work. Why? Because every single day I needed to have my sins forgiven. 
So the law points more so to the fact that I need Jesus. Again, it's a pretty poor example, but I want to make it so that we can all simply understand this truth. When I was a kid and we played football in the winter, I could easily dirty up my, my, um, my jumper. I mean, even people that are scared in football, you fall over, you just get out of the competition, but you get dirty falling over. Who knows at the end of the game if someone hasn't watched whether you played really hard or not. In my mind, the dirtier you got, the harder you played. It's the way it works. I always came home and I took my dirty jumper off and I gave it to someone else to clean it. My mum. Now, if mum's going to take the role of the priest in this story, she washed it and gave it back to me. But the next Saturday, I dirtied it up. It was my job to break the law. It's not your job, but that's what happened in life. You sin, someone else has to fix it up. The priest could do it, but it just was never ending. It, and, the, and the sacrifice itself couldn't ultimately take away the sins that kept coming up. So God does something about it. Let's go to the next slide, Sheila. And I'm picking it up in verse 9. It says, Then he said, that's Jesus, Here I am. I have come to do your will. And in this next bit, it's the cross that we were talking about. He sets aside the first, which was the law and the need for sacrifice and to go to the priest. That would never stop. It'd have to continue, continue. God sets aside that first order in order to establish the second It has to be dealt with. It has to, if you like, be a cross put through it. And the cross of Jesus Christ completely and utterly does that. But the first order has to be released in order for the second to stand. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And again in verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What a contrast between the first order and the second order. What a contrast between what the world that we live in says is wisdom and what is God's wisdom. Sheila, if you could just put up. Now this is my summation of the whole thing. Just as I sat down, it just seemed... To be so simple. The world's wisdom says it's just always changing. You've got to go from one to another. The world's wisdom says ultimately it's never ending. But as we've just said this morning, God's wisdom is never changing and never ending. Just one little end makes the difference. And then we come to verse 19. And it says, we won't go with that slide though, Sheila. It says, therefore. So because this new order's come, because this cross of Jesus Christ has been instigated, because it's a sacrifice for everyone, and it's just one sacrifice for all, forever, there's this big word that says, therefore. 
we might say, so because of all that Jesus has done. I mean, Elizabeth said, just think about Jesus dying this morning. Because all that Jesus has done, what God has established in a cross that stands forever, so, therefore. Go to the next slide, because in Romans it says it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Then it says this, and this is all I've been saying for the last 10 minutes. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pattern of this world is there's always got to be more. And you've got to jump on with that, jump into that, to have a clue. They start, if you don't jump in, by saying you're just dumb. And they finish with, you're just evil. It's happening in our day. You know, it was just a few years ago that Julia Gillard said, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. I was raised that way, she said. And she was the leader of a very progressive um, parliamentary party. That was just a few years ago. So what has changed? What has changed? The pattern of this world is when we cross out one truth, we replace it with another, there is no going back. You move with us or else. But in view of the cross of Jesus Christ, The Bible says, cross out that pattern. Stop thinking like that. Stop considering that this world's wisdom does in fact make a little bit more sense than God's wisdom. I have never, ever been able to reconcile the idea that this world could come about by a big bang. It's just ridiculous. And that evolution can actually happen. It just doesn't make any sense. The universe is in decay. Evolution says upwards and onwards. And when you question that with a scientist, they know the universe is in decay. It's that second law, Newton's law of thermodynamics, that the world is in decay. And they'll say, yes, it is. We got told this out the back by, it was a Dennis Hood told us this, the politician. He said, go and ask a scientist then, if the world is in decay, how come evolution says does exactly the opposite? Now, I'm not a provocative type of Christian. I'm not one of those social Christian, social media warriors that wants to have a fight everywhere I go. But I took that to people in my school and to the head of science and to a high up fella, and both of them just ummed and ahed and said something completely different to kind of cover that huge gap. But there's a gap! How could the world just be here? It's just so foolish. It's so utterly lacking in any sense. And yet the world jumps, the smartest people in the world jump on board with that. I used to say to the kids, if the, if the um, 
theory of evolution, I'm just thinking I can go a bit longer than I thought I could. If the theory of evolution worked, how come there are still monkeys? They're supposed to have died out. I don't get it. Natural selection says the weaker dies out. If evolution is so utterly easy and it works, how come there's only one species that's at the top of the tree? Why aren't there 50 species as smart as us, as able as us? There's a whole lot of gaps along the way. Don't get me started. <laughs> but that's the pattern of this world. We ask, the Bible talks about that the wisdom of this world is utter foolishness. And the foolishness that I've been preaching this morning, the foolishness that, or the wisdom that I've been preaching this morning is foolishness to the world. Just don't get it. How can you be how can blind faith work? You put your head in the sand and just believe there's a God. How can that be? How can this world be? I say to kids, scratch your body, you're alive. Look up, look at that plant. If you dissected that plant, there's a living force going on inside of that plant that people can't create. Where does that come from? How can an aeroplane get itself out of the ground, bring itself together, put fuel in it, get a mind or a pilot or something to go up into the air and fly without a mind behind it, an architect? An aeroplane is archaic compared to a plant. If you dissect a plant, it's just amazing what's going on inside of that. And you say, I put my head in the sand? No, I don't talk to people like that. But that's what I think inside. The foolishness. The foolishness is seen as wisdom. And the wisdom is seen as foolishness. In view of God's mercy, in view of a cross that God has put through this entire creation, in view of seeing that, consciously saying, yes, it's true, Give up on the pattern of the world that says you've got to find a new wisdom and be renewed in your, own, in your mind with what God says. And that's where we're going to go. We're going to see what God does once we say yes to him. So Sheila, if you could go to the next slide. This is um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. There's the therefore. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's really interesting. They couldn't even look at Moses' face when he was with God. They could barely look at the mountain. It's a new order. It's a new thing, but it's unchanging. It's never going to change. But it just doesn't say because you can enter. It says you can have a certain kind of confidence. Do you know, people that walk with a bit of swagger you know, I always just think, I wonder what's really behind the swagger. But we're not talking about a swagger here. It's a confidence that comes from what God's done, not what I've done. See that? It's almost like anything that you've done is totally cancelled out. What God has done is up the front, and because it's up the front, you can just follow that. Because Jesus is there, you can just follow in behind. Imagine if you had that fight in the schoolyard. There were two versus two. And you had the biggest, beefiest bloke in the world. 
Wouldn't you walk into that fight confident? Well, that's a bad example, but we walk into the presence of God with a certain confidence. It's not a swagger because it has nothing to do with us. It says, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That's that cross. It's new. It did cancel out the need for you to constantly be good and try and be good enough and make enough excuses and seek some counsel or some way to help me get away from the sense that I've blown it. It's a new and living way that's open for us through the curtain, which is his body. And since we have this great high priest, greater Jesus is greater than them all, over the house of God, it says you can do the following. You can do the following. You can draw near to God. It says there was a sincere heart. You know, really, when you come to God, when you come to that cross and you believe that Jesus Christ has died for you and you've accepted Christ's sacrifice for your life, it's, yes, it's salvation, but there's just a whole lot of stuff that happens that comes your way. And the first one there is a sincere heart. You get that. Do you know what a, a divided heart is? I've lived with a divided heart. can sometimes still battle with a divided heart. But imagine having an undivided heart. That means what you think, what you say is actually what you're thinking. What you say is what you really hold to inside. Imagine those two things actually happening. It's pretty amazing. A sincere heart is a heart that's real. It's another way of saying it. It's not fake. He gives you a sincere heart when you come to Jesus. And then it talks about an assured faith. Assurance that faith, and with a full assurance that faith brings. This whole notion of knowing what you actually know. And we can know a lot of things. But isn't it true about the Christian faith? Isn't it true about Jesus that somehow you just know that you know? There's an assurance that no textbook will give you. Certainly no preacher will give you. There is this sense that God gives you a complete assurance that what you believe not only is true, that you know it is. Punch the depth of that. You know, psychoanalysis, it's, I can't get there. But what I can say is God's given you such an assurance of faith that we would stand up and we would die for it. It's bizarre. People all over the world, they say a half a million every year, die simply for their faith in Jesus Christ. Do they have a good preacher or a good church, good textbook? No, they had an assured faith that comes to you. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We heard a little bit about conscience last week. Do you know there's only two ways you can go with your conscience as a human being. You can either have your conscience cleansed, and only God can do that. Blood of bulls and goats can't do it. Or... There's one other thing you can do. 
you can allow your conscience to be seared. You can do something wrong so often that your conscience fails to tell you that it's wrong. I think that's how murderers get there at some stage. Thieves get there at some stage. Thank goodness my mum's not here. I'll tell you a story. It's just come to my mind. The first time I stole 20 cents out of my mum's purse, I felt lower than a dog's belly. I really didn't like it. I took it, in fact, I took two coins because Chelsea Theatre cost 45 cents to get in and it was two movies plus at halftime I could get Jaffers and stuff, all for 45 cents. And I had five cents, so I had a dilemma. And I knew Mum had a big purse with fat as because she just had coins everywhere. There were six kids. And so I snuck into her bedroom and I took that 20-cent piece and I left and I felt terrible until about a fortnight later when there was another good movie on. And I no, it's true. And I snuck in there. I felt terrible as I snuck in there. I said, oh, you're a thief, Jim. Now, that's a conscience. The spirit and the soul, boom, it's deep stuff. You don't get, you don't get your hands on that very much. It's got its hands on you. And I took the money and I took off and I thought, geez, I'm no good. I went there a month later, I took it again, and I can remember clearly this time, one of the times, saying, one day, Mum, you don't know it, but I'm going to give you this money back. I know I'm doing wrong, and I'll make up for it. My conscience was still working, diminishing. It was diminishing. The next time I went in, it was just a matter of trying to make sure I didn't get caught. The thought of actually stealing the money had kind of been lost and my conscience, it really wasn't working too well. Uh, there's a big word that we use called desensitisation and I reckon this world is becoming incredibly desensitised to, to the moral universe that God has put in place. And when it does wrong long enough, and I don't know why, I'm sorry if this is going to offend you, but I keep having the thought of the unborn child this morning. How we've turned that into a mother's pro-choice. When did the child ever get to choose? How can we get so foolish? But because our conscience has been seared. I can remember coming home from hospital and I'd just seen two of my children. I had two of my children and another one was being born, Becky. And I came home, and Carol's story is that someone always looked after me when she was in hospital, but I don't remember it that way. I was on my own. I forgot you were here, Carol. Um, I, I better tell the truth. Uh, I was home on my own, and I went to the post box, and out of the post box there was this pamphlet, and the pamphlet was clearly uh, against abortion. Uh, I didn't agree with abortion. I was a Christian at the time, uh, but it wasn't a massive issue to me. I hadn't really thought it through much at all. But as I sat down and I read this one, I had little Emma, who was probably, I don't know, 14, 16 months, whatever, sitting on my lap, and I'm reading this pamphlet about abortion, and, and I, I remember reading the doctor 
was not calling it a, a baby anymore, but a fetus. That part of it rang true to me, and I thought, wow, yeah, they changed the language. And there was a bucket, and there was a baby in the bucket. It had been terminated, you know, fairly a long way through in one of the ways in which they terminate children. And Emma looked at the picture. I wasn't conscious that she was even looking at it. And she said, baby. And I thought to myself, how does my 18-month-old baby daughter know that that's a baby, but the doctor and the mum don't? That's how the conscience works. Now, you can have your conscience cleansed or you can choose to have your conscience seared. We live in that kind of world. Fancy, something that you really can't do much about, conscience. God's saying that he's going to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. I mean, I'm thinking that has to do with past sins, but more often than not, it's the one that you're struggling with today. You know, the reoccurring sins. It can really get us down. If it's your attitude and you think you got it all over, you know, you pay, finally you got patient and then you get cut off. I mean, where did that come from? Having our bodies washed with pure water. We sing a song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus washes us. No, oh, I haven't got my notes anymore. So, a new and living way. All of that. Sheila, the next slide. This, this verse here, when I first came back to the Lord um, at the age of about 30, the Bible just became just, I just couldn't put it down. But do you know what it's like with certain verses of the Bible just jump out? They just, you know, I'm sure God's got that torch and it just says, read that one. And something inside of you just says, you've got to look at that verse. This one here I learned right from the start. I didn't really understand why. I didn't understand why it's such a great verse. But I put it on the back of the toilet door as I was in the practice of putting verses all over the place to try to get my head and mind back because I was having bad dreams and I was finding myself, you know, I was a huge swearer and I find myself catching myself swearing. And so I was, you know, trying my hardest to get it right. But when I learnt pretty early on that just God doesn't get, his, his cage doesn't get rattled when you get it wrong. He knows your heart. And, he, and so I started putting up scripture and just saying, I'm just going to learn scripture. And this one, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful was so important to me. And it comes up here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Now, if you weren't at Johann's flourish, things on Sunday night, you'll be docked your pay. They were fantastic. Uh, and I'm not making you have a conscience about it at all. I'm just saying you missed it. Why? They were absolutely fantastic. Anyway, he said a couple of things and I have completely plagiarised it. Because most preaching often is plagiarism from what somebody else says. He said, what did he say? He said, the internal intention is what happens when you give your heart to Christ. And the, the Beatitudes, um, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn. He, he says it's all about what's really in your heart. 
Now, if your internal intentions, that's the term that he used, is to hold on, you will. You just will. You'll blow things as a Christian. But if deep in your heart, I have decided to follow Jesus, I'm not going back to that world pattern. Yes, you're not going to be perfect, but you will indeed hold on because your internal intention in your heart is to say, God, I want you. And then he spoke about, he didn't use the word unswervingly, but he spoke about the way we live our lives. Is It's like driving, he was riding a bike or driving a car, and if you begin to focus on something, you just tend to move towards it. I took Ruth out for a drive, and she's going up Devereux Road, and she just drives straight at this tree. And I said, stop! And she just... And we missed, you know, we're that far from the tree. And I said, what were you doing? And she said, I got distracted. Very happy to tell me. Johann said, if you just begin to see something and it grabs your attention, it's not that you're driving away from God, but you begin to veer off in that direction. Hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. One of the other verses that I learnt when I first came back to the Lord was a verse that has to do with promise and faithfulness. It has to do with what God says. God not only promises but he's not going to replace it with anything. It's it's what I've been preaching this morning. He's not replacing the cross of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God and the power of God is Jesus Christ. Unchangeable. But we live in a world, and one of these verses that comes from Mosiah, it says, All mankind is like grass, and all their glory is like the wildflower. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Can one verse mean so much to one person? The answer to that is yes. Hold on. The rest of Hebrews, have I got anything else? So the rest of Hebrews, this part is the new and living way that he speaks of. This is what might happen if indeed... The power of Christ is your wisdom. You'll consider, it's a good word, consider. That means spend time. Just don't fall into a bit of social plot. Plan. Work out. What's a good way? Do you know Dr. Ken Cleasy yesterday hired a taxi and took it out to mum and dad's place? I don't know. I don't think he came for the morning tea. He came to see... Dad, he must have planned that. He had to. It's not as easy as getting into a car. There's a new and living way. And that new and living way is to consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this is a long sermon, 
And the truth of it is we're closer to that day than when I first started. The Bible tells us that. It's locked in. It is finished. It is done. The rest, I haven't got time. And I didn't even put it up there. But the rest, can I paraphrase it this way? If you can go home and you can check out the rest of Hebrews chapter 7. The way I'd put it is this. Don't put a cross. Don't put a cross through the cross. It talks about backsliding, Israel, and the warnings of Israel who, who just turned their back on God. But I would say to you, God says, just don't put a cross through your faith. There's not anything more out there. Don't get caught veering off to the side and focusing on. It's more often a passion. But hold unswervingly to the faith that you have and the hope that you have. It also talks about not forgetting the days when you did it really good. Now, it talks about when you're under persecution and then when you're insulted for your faith as you believed in Christ. Don't forget those days. Hark back to them and remember. Don't lose your confidence, it says later in that chapter. Don't lose your confidence because God's wisdom and power is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's never changing and it's never ending.